Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen, at snc.tv and local now, channel 525. The following program is sponsored by Rosenthal Wealth Management. It's a registered representative offering securities and advisory services through Satara Advisor Networks, LLC, a broker, dealer, and registered investment advisor, member FINRA SIPC. Satara is under separate ownership from Rosenthal Wealth Management Group. Rosenthal Wealth Management Group is located at 9265 Corporate Circle in Manassas, Virginia, and can be reached at 703-330-3100. Chris McKay is not affiliated with Satara Advisor Networks, LLC, nor Rosenthal Wealth Management Group. Bob Jones is a marketing assistant of Rosenthal Wealth Management Group and is associated with Satara Advisor Networks, LLC. It's time now for Making Money Sense, live with Larry Rosenthal. Larry is recognized as one of the nation's leading financial and retirement planners and is here to answer your questions right now. Author, speaker, and talk show host Larry Rosenthal is dedicated to teaching others financial stewardship from a biblical point of view. Call Larry now. Studio lines are open at 855-ROSE-123. That's 855-767-3123. Making Money Sense is on the air. Well, welcome once again to the Larry Rosenthal Show, Making Money Sense. And we are having a treat once again today with Dina Arnett in studio with us, taking care of business for Larry, who's got some time off. Hello, Dina. Good morning. It is so good to see you. It is always good to see you. It's an exciting day. We've got a lot of stuff planned for today, and I've even changed careers. I've decided to start selling skis in Southern California. What do you think? <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> wow. So, so what's the weather like out there right now? It, it's been. They've had. I mean, here it's snowing. It's been snowing in Southern California a little mm-hmm. bit. A little bit. A lot of flooding and stuff there. They're having to wear coats for like the first time in forever. It's. it's a I, I have a friend who's a who's a distance runner, and she lives out in California. And she was posting on social media this week. She said, "I I had to pull out a coat. I I just I don't know what to do." <laughs> you have to pull it out, or you have to go buy one. I imagine people are selling coats are making some money now. I bet you could charge a markup above sticker price on a coat in Southern California these days. You probably could. You probably could. Speaking of sticker prices, we're going to talk about stuff in the markets, right? It has been a difficult week. Uh, yesterday capped off a pretty rough one. Uh, stocks around the globe were lower this week because we had this combination of, of just really resilient economic data, which is feeding stubborn inflation. And, of course, that fuels fears that central banks, the Federal Reserve, the European Central Bank, Bank of Japan, all these banks, it's fueling this fear that they will have to continue hiking interest rates longer than originally anticipated. And when we get data like that, we see evidence of that fear, of that anxiety in the bond market. And quite often, we look at what happens with the 10-year treasury, the movement of that yield on the 10-year treasury. As the yield goes up, that tells you people are nervous. Investors are nervous about what's happening. And this week, the yield on the 10-year Treasury rose to almost 4%. 
And then we saw on the other side of that equation, we saw the price for a barrel of West Texas Intermediate Crude drop by a buck twenty-five. It's at seventy-four and a quarter right now. So we're seeing a lot of volatility in the market. We're seeing a lot of volatility in economic data. Interestingly enough, this the Chicago Board of Options Exchange, they have this volatility index called the VIX, mm-hmm. and it measures the volatility in the stock market. The VIX, no surprise, was up to 22.75 on Friday from about 21. And this this index is an interesting thing to watch. It's not something you invest in, but it's a data point, okay? It is something you can watch to help put more understanding on what's happening in the market. In times of relative market stability, the VIX will be a fairly low number. During the past year, when we've been combating inflation and and all the uncertainty surrounding what the Fed may or may not do, the VIX ranged anywhere from 17 to almost 38 at its absolute most volatile. So when we see a lot of uncertainty in the market, Um, it's not unusual for that VIX number to creep up. It's still not as bad as it was at the worst of last year when it was almost 38. But that number rising, what that tells you is that the roller coaster ride that you experience as an investor, you're going to have higher highs and lower lows. And right now, it's it's more airing on the side of the lower lows. Yeah, it's a bit of a concern for the for <clears throat> folks when they're looking at uh, think, you know, their their investments going up, going down, going up. It's it's a ride, and and what I tell my clients: if you are an investor, you should expect volatility. I, I can't tell you how many times somebody will send me an email or a, or a message um, and, and and say, you know what, I I really just need something with a good return and not a lot of downside. Yeah, the perfect investment. Let me see if I can find that one for you. The perfect investment has no downside, (laughs) no fees, only upside. And and trust me, (laughs) if I had such a thing, we would be broadcasting live from a beach in Bora Bora because I'd have one of those little glass-bottomed huts. That's right. You'd you'd be out on the sea enjoying it. (laughs) Absolutely. Seeing between my toes, talking about markets and investing. But unfortunately, as investors, we have to accept volatility in our lives. The thing that we can do as investors is we can decide how much of that volatility we wish to accept. So someone who is very, very, very conservative, they their ability, their desire to withstand volatility is very, very small. If I've got a very, very aggressive investor, they're willing to ride the extreme roller coaster rides in search of higher returns. So as investors, we can't always eliminate volatility, but we can certainly manage it. Yeah, I guess you really look for those investments that you know are quality regardless of the economy, right? And you just kind of ride the storm if you can, if you have that sort of a risk tolerance level going on. Well, and and something I have long told my clients is, look, if you want to speculate with a portion of your money, we can do that. Let's make sure it's a portion of money that is is not so significant that it will harm your financial plan if it doesn't go well. And then the rest of the money, 
We're going to buy quality investments. We're going to measure the risk. We're going to use the statistical tools at our disposal to make sure that the rest of the portfolio isn't a wilder ride than you want. And then we can monitor that over time. But the thing to understand is that if you buy quality investments, even quality investments will hit hard times. You can pick any stock in the S&P 500, look at the performance in 2022, and know these were a lot of good companies that really got kicked in the teeth because of the problem with inflation, because of the fear that the Fed was going to raise rates too much too fast and tip the economy into recession. Doesn't make them bad companies. Good companies, stock prices can also have bad times. But if we buy quality investments, we monitor the risk associated with them, we have a far better chance of coming out of those bad times in a more desirable fashion. Yeah, definitely. Hey, listen, if you'd like to dial in and talk to Dina here today, 855-767-3123 is our phone number. That's 855-ROSE-123. And we do have some some lines available for you. We need to start working Bob a little harder back there. Make sure that he gets Wake up, phone. Bob. Come on, Bob. Let's go. Let's get some phone calls in here. 855-767-3123. So with all of the data that came out last week, investors are now expecting the Fed to raise rates in each of their next three meetings. So the, the Fed funds futures, which is a forward-looking mechanism that helps us gauge expectations. The Fed funds futures now suggest that the United States Federal Reserve will raise interest rates by one quarter of 1% at each of its next three meetings. However, the odds of a half percent rate hike in March have increased to about 27%. The Fed watches this economic data like a hawk. They are looking every single time a data point comes out, they're looking to see if all of this interest rate monetary policy tightening that they engaged in in 2022, they're looking to see if it is showing up in the data. Earlier this year, we were seeing some early signs that it was, but we're in this period of time where we're going to have pieces of data that show a disinflationary trend. And then we're going to see pieces of data like yesterday that show an absolutely not disinflationary trend. And that throws volatility into the market. It throws uncertainty into the market. Larry has a saying that markets want clarity of direction. Right now, we don't have it. So this volatility is going to go up and down in the market. You're going to see volatility in the data. But as time progresses, you're going to see the data become more and more consistent. It's just a very uncertain time with all of that right now. Well, you know, the uncertainty also is for the housing market with these interest rates going up a little bit. I mean, a lot of folks are looking like, oh, no, now I'm going to have to buy a smaller house or I'm not going to get the house that I wanted. Well, it's it's very interesting that you mentioned housing. One of the data points that came out this past week was existing home sales here in the United States. And existing home sales here in the United States just fell for the 11th consecutive month. Well, it kind of makes sense. Yeah. Well, it makes a whole lot of sense for two reasons. First of all, as you already mentioned, interest rates are double what they were a year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. You can't buy as much house with interest rates inching above 6% going towards 7. 
<laughs> and the other piece of this is that there's not as much available inventory on the market as there was. People who may have been inclined to sell their home a year and a half ago have decided to stay put because they don't want to give up their two and a half or three percent mortgage. So they're staying put, perhaps renovating their home, perhaps slapping some new paint on or putting a fire pit in the backyard, making the home more enjoyable so that they can hang on to that really nice lower rate mortgage. And so what that means is that people who are currently looking for a new home, they have less to choose from. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's going to make the, the existing home sales number drop as well. But we have to look under the hood. We have to really look into what what comprises that data. It's not just that people aren't buying the homes. It's that there aren't as many homes available. I talked to one of my realtor friends this week, and he told me that right now in the D.C. metro area, we've got about half of the available inventory that we would have under normal circumstances. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's that a, makes it harder. It's a hard time for real estate agents and for the real estate industry in general right now. And mortgage lenders. And mortgage lenders. The, the refinance Builders. market has dried up quite a lot. Yeah. And Larry always talks about the fact that there are so many things that go into building a home, and there are so many different industries that are, infected, are affected by that. It's a multiplier effect, and it's a very different multiplier effect than if we're talking about an existing home. Mm -hmm. If I decide to sell my home in Virginia, I'm selling my home. A realtor will make a commission. Um, you know, somebody may, may make a few bucks because I have them come put some neutral paint all over the house. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll pay someone to, to clean the house and stage it and make it look really pretty. But that's not much of a multiplier effect when you compare it to building a new home. Oh, yeah. If you're, if you're building a home from the ground up, there are so many different industries involved in that from the concrete that gets poured in the foundation to the architect who designs the home to the cabinet makers, the drywall hangers, the roofers. I mean, it goes on and on and on. That multiplier effect is quite, quite large. I'm into that. Hey, let's, let's take a quick break. We'll be back sure. with more of the Larry Rosenthal Show here in just a minute. We invite you to give us a call at 855-767-3123. That's 855-ROSE-123 to talk to Larry Rosenthal. Nope, actually, let's talk to Dina Arnett here on the talk Larry Rosenthal Show. Larry has the day off, and we appreciate you calling us up. 855-767-3123. More in just a moment. Sense live with Larry Rosenthal. Phone lines are open for your retirement and financial planning questions at 855 Rose 123. That's 855 767 3123. More making money sense in a moment. Another Money Minute with Larry Rosenthal. Proper financial planning starts with a firm foundation. Don't jump up to the third rung of the ladder when you're trying to climb to the top of the roof. 
Make sure your insurance is aligned properly. Make sure you have the right types of homeowners, auto, umbrella, disability, long-term care, life insurance, just to name a few. Financial planning starts with a firm foundation, and that foundation is your insurance. Then take a look at your cash flow. Are you able to save money? Save it in the proper places. Retirement planning, traditional IRAs, traditional 401k plans, Roth IRAs. Make sure that the dollars are actually working for you towards your investment objectives. on Fox Business, CNBC, and The Wall Street Journal. Larry Rosenthal is here right now to take your calls at 855-767-3123. That's 855-ROSE-123. This is The Larry Rosenthal Show. Well, welcome back to The Larry Rosenthal Show, 855-767-3123, 855-ROSE-123. Dina Arnett is in studio taking your telephone calls. Again, 855-ROSE-123. Dina. So before the break, we were talking about the Fed and what the expectations are moving forward. And right now, the market is pricing in a one quarter of 1% rate hike at each of the next three meetings. So they'll meet mid-March, they'll meet in May, and then they'll meet again in June. There is a possibility that by the end of the first half of the year, they're done. Now, I don't know what the odds of that are, but what I do know is that historically, more often than not, when the Fed finally pauses, when the Fed finally says, you know what, we're finished raising rates, we're going to sit back and just let it work. Typically, a very nice market rally follows. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, There have been a couple of instances where that wasn't the case in that whole Y2K, 9-11 tech bubble burst era. We did not see the market rebound um, after a Fed pause. That was that was a rather unusual circumstance. More often than not, we have a very nice turnaround in the market when the Fed stops. So we're all looking forward to that because that will mean, A, no more interest rate hikes, and B, that inflation is closer to being tamed. But in the meantime, we, we look to the Fed to give us guidance. We look to the Fed to tell us what to expect because we don't like surprises, right? No, no investors like surprises. And when the minutes of the Fed Open Market Committee meeting were released this week, they had some language that said the, the participants in the Federal Open Market Committee felt it was, and this is a direct quote, it was important that overall financial conditions be consistent with the degree of policy restraint that the committee is putting in place in order to bring inflation back to the 2% goal. So this suggests that policymakers aren't exactly thrilled um, and that they anticipate tighter monetary policy may, may be needed. Is, okay. that a, is that code word for raising interest rates? That's exactly what it is. They talk about tightening and loosening. When the Fed raises interest rates, they make it harder to borrow money. They mm. tighten things down. When the Fed loosens interest rates, they reduce rates, like we saw in the wake of the 08 recession. They, they made money much more cheap to borrow, both for companies and consumers. Right now, they're making it more expensive to borrow. And what that does, the effect of that, 
should be a slowdown in most areas of the economy. The Fed's challenge, the tightrope <laughs> that they have to walk on all of this, is not to tighten so much that they tip us into recession. Wow. I mean, to me, it's amazing that they're able to keep it steady as it is. It's just, it's complicated. It is very complicated. I'm glad I'm not one of those decision makers. <laughs> Amen to that. 855-767-3123. Fuller's on the line with us here this morning. Fuller, what's your question for Dina? Good morning, Dana. I don't know if you remember me. Me and my wife visited you, I don't know, it had to be 10 years ago. I um, do remember you, Fuller. I hope all is well. <laughs> Talking about marriage counseling. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I... Uh, I was curious if, uh, you know, based on what you're talking about, the uh, the economy challenges, what the Fed's about to do, if a person had three, four thousand dollars that really isn't doing anything and they wanted to use it wisely, put it somewhere so it's at least doing something, what would you recommend? Well, you know, interestingly enough, Fuller, it, with the Fed raising interest rates and with the bond market showing much nicer yields, I think it's fair to look at perhaps a high-yield savings account, maybe even a U.S. Treasury Um it's, it's hard for me to make a specific recommendation because it's been a long time since we talked. I don't know the overall circumstance. But I can say in, in a general sense that U.S. Treasuries have, have very – uh, a long list of different maturities. You can buy a, a T-bill for one month. You can buy one for 10 years. And the yields are so much nicer than they've been in quite a long time. You might look there. Um, I think it's a neat idea to buy either a six-month or a one-year T-bill and, and let that money earn a nice interest rate without subjecting it to market risk. And then at the time that it matures, you can reassess and determine whether you want to buy another one or whether you want to use that money to enter into the equity market. Right. Okay. No, that's great. I appreciate that. I really do. Well, I tell you what, thank you so much for listening. It's great to hear your voice. I tell you what, Foley, we're going to put you on hold. Hold. Maybe you guys need to get back together and kind of reevaluate things a little bit. Again, 855-767-3123 is our phone number to call to talk to Dina Arnett here today in the studio. Yeah, that was great. I love it when clients call in. That's fun. Uh, yeah. You know, we're still talking about the Fed because that's the biggest thing going right now. I, I know I'm going on and on and taking chunks and chunks of valuable showtime, but this is important stuff. Um, and, and this is a period of time where good economic data is bad and bad economic <laughs> data is good. Everything is sort of turned on its ear these days uh, to the degree that since the last Fed meeting, economic data shows stronger than expected activity, which means slower progress is made on inflation. Mm -hmm. Okay. Normally, we don't want to see unemployment go up. Normally, we don't want to see housing prices drop. Normally, we don't want to see consumer spending slow down. All of that stuff is not what we want under normal market conditions. But in this sticky, persistent, inflationary market, it would be a relief to see some of those signs of a slowdown. Yeah, I can see why. It just, it just kind of feels like we're kind of stuck in the middle and we're not going anywhere right now. It depends on what data you look at. Yeah. 
And, and, you know, in that vein, yesterday, the thing that precipitated the yucky market we saw yesterday was this thing called core PCE inflation. This is the Fed's preferred price gauge. This is what they're looking at more than anything else. That number was up 4.7% from the same time last year and up 0.6% from the month before. Those numbers may not seem big until you look at what the expectation was. So on that year-over-year number, we were expecting 4.5, we got Mm 4.7. And on the month-to-month, we expected a half a percent, we got Mm six-tenths. So, again, those don't seem like huge numbers, but when you're trying to combat inflation, you're looking at the trend. And right now, in that particular metric, the trend is not disinflationary. Hence the market sell-off yesterday because investors are looking at this, and the writing on the wall is that the Fed's not going to slow down anytime soon. A lot of moving parts, a lot of moving parts here. So much, so much. I'm wondering for the average investor, I mean, it's really kind of stay the course, isn't it? It's kind of if you've got a good financial plan, hang in there because eventually it'll stabilize a little bit. Well, and that's just it. And, And we talk over and over and over about the very real fact, and study after study bears this out, It is impossible to time the market in such a way that you get out at a market high and then back in at a market low and avoid all downside. It doesn't stop people from trying, that's for sure. Again, beach in Bora Bora. (laughs) (laughs) If we could do that, we would all be rolling in the dough. We would all be sitting this market out and saying, yeah, on July 17th at at 3.30 p.m., that's when you get back in the market. So how do you know when things are actually on sale and that you could actually should pour a little bit of money in? You know, it, it you you that's a, a complex question, Chris, <laughs> with sorry. a lot of different answers. Yeah. But the bottom line of it is if you are a long-term investor and you can look at what the market is doing right now. And again, I'm talking about quality investments. I'm not talking speculative stuff. Mm-hmm. If, if we're looking at quality investments and I can pick hypothetical stock XYZ and see that the price of that stock today is what it was two years ago, mm-hmm. I may view that as an opportunity and want to throw a few dollars in. But I've got to be a long-term investor. In a market like this especially, I think it's a good opportunity to pick names you wish you'd picked a couple of years ago. But you cannot expect them to do anything for you right now. You've got to look at what these names will do for you in the next three, five, ten years. Yeah, you have a little research, too, to make sure that they've got a good company. And there's lots of things to go into researching stocks and making sure you've got the good stuff. You need a good financial planner, really, to kind of look at that for you. Absolutely. And, and again, I can't emphasize this enough. You want to understand the level of risk that you expose yourself to. Mutual funds are awfully nice for a lot of people because you can go in and buy a basket of a whole lot of different individual stocks and spread that risk out. You can also do that with exchange-traded funds, um, to some degree closed-end funds. But when you go to buy an individual stock, an individual equity, you've got to understand how much additional risk you're putting in the portfolio. And a good financial plan can help you understand that. 
I've always wondered, and maybe you can shed some light on this. I mean, why would some person buy this A stock and some person buy this B stock? Is it all about risk tolerance? Is that where it really is? Is it is just the plan that they put together? How do I know? I mean, as an average individual, you could tell 10 people to buy this stock, right, or versus that stock. I just was curious as how that was done. There's, there's so much that goes into it. Yes, risk tolerance is part of it. Expectation, forward expectation is part of it. If I'm going to buy XYZ stock, I want to know who XYZ's competitors are. I want to know how much market share they have versus their competitors. I want to see how much money they've got in the bank versus how much they are having to shell out to suppliers and employees and for rent on their buildings and all of that overhead that they have to pay. What are they going to keep after all the expenses are paid? There's a fair bit that goes into picking individual stocks. And sometimes people buy individual stocks just because they like the company. Yeah. Yeah, they like what they've did. They like what they mm-hmm. see. Sure. Hey Pat's on the line with us from Florida. Welcome, Pat. What's your question for Dina? Hey Pat. Yeah, well, uh, good morning. And I heard you just say that you like when clients call, so I'm a client. Oh. Oh, fantastic. Good morning. <laughs> Happy Saturday. Good morning. Pat, Thank are you, you are you wearing Thank a coat you. this are you wearing a coat in Florida this morning? No, no need for a coat. A lot less than a coat. Okay, good. Yeah, good for cozy. you. <laughs> Um, my question is, um, is a, a spouse um, entitled to Social Security benefits from their deceased loved one? So husband dies, is the wife entitled to continue to receive her Social Security benefits? Great question. So Social Security is is structured so that when your spouse passes away, you get to keep the higher Social Security benefit. If the higher if the person with the higher Social Security benefit goes on to heaven, the surviving spouse will get an amount sufficient to bring their own benefit up to what the deceased spouse was receiving. But you don't get to keep them both. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's... Um, I think I heard you say that before. Okay. Yeah, um, they'll let you keep... Essentially, you're keeping the higher of the two. The logistics of it is they'll give you a spousal supplement to bring you up to that amount. Okay, and if you were already getting the higher amount, then you just, you'll just stay there. Correct. Go with the bigger man okay. number, yeah. Okay. Pat, thanks for your call this morning. We appreciate you you. calling in. You have a great day. Have a great day, Pat. Let's talk to Cynthia in Washington, D.C. Cynthia, what's your question here today for Dina? Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for being there. I have a question about um, converting a traditional to a Roth IRA. Yes, ma'am. I wanted to convert like 15,000 of my traditional to a Roth. And my question is, if I do that, like right now, February 2023, and I convert it $15,000, do I need to, would I also be obligated to pay um, interest on anything over the $15,000 at the end of the year? No, ma'am. No, ma'am. You pay taxes on the amount you convert at the time you convert it. You stop the tax clock right there. So if you convert $15,000 on February 25th, 
That's the amount you're going to pay taxes on. And that's the point, right? If I take never before taxed money and I decide today that I'm going to pay those taxes, I'm doing that because I want that tax clock stopped. I don't want to pay taxes on any earnings on that money ever again. Okay, great, great. Um, I have actually another question about it. I did convert $15,000 December of 2022. For some reason, um, they've not sent me any, like, tax form or anything, Um, Mm. and I'm not sure why they didn't send tax stuff. They basically told me to talk to an accountant to see how, you know, see how much, how how much taxes I would need to pay on that $15,000. And I'm just not, I'm not clear as to what to do. Um, The custodian should provide you with a tax document on the conversion. You, you've got to have some documentation for that. Two things, two things are popping in my head about this. First of all, I would go directly to the custodian. So if you're at XYZ custodian, I would call the 800 number on your account statement. And quite honestly, I would be a squeaky wheel. I would talk to somebody until I got the right answer. Because the the fact that they're implying that they're not going to send you a tax document for a Roth conversion, that is not good. And then the second thing that is on my brain, I would want to go through my December account statement and make sure that the conversion actually happened. You know, the explanation they gave is because it was so close to December 31st, which makes no sense because I'm looking at my statement now. And I guess by the time I finally got everything straight, it's looking like it was confirmed uh, December 28th. 2022. So that is a 2022 Roth conversion, period. Gotcha. Okay, so I'm just going to call them back, and they're going to have to do better. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely, they will. They should, but. There you go. And listen, if you don't get the right answer, Cynthia, Mm -hmm. ask for a supervisor. And if that supervisor doesn't give you the right answer, ask for their supervisor. Okay, because this is this is actually Fidelity Investment, so I'm like, what is going on? But thanks so much. Yes, ma'am. Thank you for the call. Cynthia, you have a great day. Appreciate you calling us here today. And we could get you together and maybe have a second set of eyes on that with some folks there at the office. 855-767-3123, 855-ROSE-123. Let's take a quick break here today. We'll be back with more of the Larry Rosenthal Show here in just a moment. Stay tuned. Sense live with Larry Rosenthal. Phone lines are open for your retirement and financial planning questions at 855 Rose 123. That's 855 767 3123. More making money sense in a moment. There are still too many countries that give little or no assistance to disabled children. In third world nations, these children could be left alone while parents try to eke out a living. 
About 10 years ago, residents of Prince William and Fauquier counties in Virginia formed Children with Disabilities Fund International. It focuses on the needs of disabled children. CDFI's current work in Jamaica and Kenya supports about 300 disabled children and their families. For some of these children, they're getting the care they need for the first time in their lives. CDFI recently began an individual child sponsorship program in an effort to better meet the needs of these disabled children. To choose your child to sponsor, go to thecdfi.org. That's thecdfi.org. Your gift will help transform not only a disabled child's life, but the lives of their parents and of the surrounding community. Go to thecdfi.org. Make a difference. Go to thecdfi.org. Delivering sound financial advice you can depend on. You found the Larry Rosenthal Show. Call now with your questions, 855-767-3123, or stop by LarryRosenthal.com. This is the Larry Rosenthal Show. Welcome back to the Larry Rosenthal Show, 855-767-3123. Dina Arnett is in studio with us, and we're having a good time today, aren't we, Dina? Having a blast, (laughs) having a blast. Listen, um, we were talking about tax reporting on a Roth conversion before the break, and I just want to clarify a couple of things. When you complete a Roth conversion, you should absolutely receive an IRS Form 1099-R from the custodian. That will include the distribution from the IRA, and then you report that transfer on a Form 8606, and that's where you tell the IRS what portion of that conversion is taxable. if, if you're not getting a tax form for a Roth conversion, I think the first step is to make sure the conversion actually happened, and then the next step is to call the custodian and ask for your tax form. There you go. Hey, listen, we've got Wayne on the line from Virginia who's got a question about our favorite topic, annuities. Well, I know ah, favorite. Hi, Wayne. How you doing, Wayne? Wayne hey, you, good morning, y'all. I appreciate you taking my call. Sure thing. I was, uh, I'm a uh, federal employee, and uh, I've got about three years uh, before I can retire, and I was wondering your opinion on annuities. Give me some context, Wayne. That, uh, that it's better just to uh, manage your own money, figure out what your bills are, you know, what your monthly bills are, and uh, do it that way so that, uh, you know, you don't get a uh, charge. Um, but then I've heard other people's opinion that it's better to do, you know, the annuities, the ones that, you know, uh, they set, they give you a set amount, and they're essentially good, you know, understand as long as you live. And I uh, Obviously, I need to read a little bit more up on them, but I just wanted to uh, get you guys' opinion on it. Okay, great question. So there are pros and cons. Absolutely, there are pros and cons to annuities. And and, in in very general, high-level terms, I'll talk to you about the pros and the cons. There are a lot of different types of annuities out there. There are fixed annuities that really act like a CD. They give you a fixed interest rate, and that's it. There's no market risk, not a lot of potential for return. 
there are what are called equity indexed annuities, which promise you either limited or no downside and a portion of the upside of a market index, perhaps an S&P 500, a NASDAQ, maybe a foreign index, maybe even a bond index, but they'll give you a portion of the return of those indices depending on performance in a given contract year. And then there are what are called variable annuities. And these annuities have the most exposure to the market, the most potential exposure. You get to pick the investments within this contract. And generally, they will give you the return of the chosen investments or some guaranteed rate of return. And they will use those returns to help calculate a guaranteed payout. So the annuity world is very complex, Wayne. In, in, in very, very simple terms, the, pro, uh, the biggest upside to an annuity is guaranteed lifetime income. If you buy an annuity that has an endorsement or a rider for guaranteed lifetime income, that's the biggest selling point there is for one. Um, annuities were originally created to provide tax deferral. Okay, if you've got the federal thrift savings plan, you've already got tax deferral, so you wouldn't be buying an annuity for that. That's just that's an unused piece for you. You would be buying it for guaranteed lifetime income. The flip side of that is guarantees are not cheap. If you buy an annuity that promises guaranteed lifetime income, you're going to pay for it. And the, the annuity opponents of the world cite those fees as the main reason not to buy them. As a financial planner, I'm looking at my client's current sources of guaranteed income for retirement. If you're a federal employee, you're either going to have a FERS or a civil service annuity already. If you are FERS, you're going to have Social Security. So we would look to see, do those two sources of guaranteed income, do they cover the basics of life? Do they keep the lights on, food on the table, gas in the car? If they don't, it may be prudent to carve off a portion of that TSP balance to put into something that will make up the difference. If, the, if, your, if your federal annuity and your Social Security are enough to pay the basics of life comfortably, I'm not sure an annuity is something that, that adds a whole lot of value for you. Um, it, there's, there's so much more that goes into that conversation. Um, there are annuities that will provide lifetime income, and if there's a dollar left when God calls you home, they replenish the entire amount to your beneficiary. Sometimes that's a really attractive option for people, but I think in general, Wayne, you're going to want to talk to a financial planner, not a product salesperson, okay? There are a lot of people out there pushing different products without doing a full financial plan, and I think that's dangerous. Okay. Now, uh, do, you, do uh, you specialize in financial planning for federal employees? Yes, sir, we do. In fact, the vast majority of our clientele here at Rosenthal Wealth Management are federal employees and retirees. Okay. Well, I would like to uh, stay on the line and uh, get some information about that then, please. And I sure appreciate you taking the call. Absolutely, Wayne. Thank you for listening. Good talking to you. Hang on just a second. We'll get you over to Bob. On the line with us now is Bill from Dumfries. What's your question here today for Dina? 
Yes, um, I'm planning on retiring this year, and I'm a federal employee, and I have a question about the thrift savings plan. Yes, sir. Um, I know I can keep the, the money in the thrift savings plan or move it to an IRA. I'd like to know if you have any advice on helping me make that decision of either keeping it there or moving it forward to an IRA. And then also, um, based upon your financial uh, planning experience, what do most people do? Great question, Bill. Thank you so much. So the question is, with a, as a federal employee, when you retire, should you leave your money in the thrift savings plan, which is where you've been accumulating wealth your entire career, or should you take it out? There are a lot of varied opinions on that topic alone. And, and the pros and cons, um, you know, the, the big upside to the federal thrift savings plan is that because it is such a, a mammoth plan, there are so many participants in that plan, it's very inexpensive for participants to keep their money there. That's the absolute biggest upside, in my opinion, to the thrift savings plan. Your investment expenses are, are just negligible. If you're someone who is very comfortable managing their own investments, if you know how to analyze risk, put together an asset allocation, and then monitor that over time, perhaps the TSP is a great place to keep the money. They recently opened up a self-directed option where you have more available to you, more investments than the traditional GFCS and i So you've got a lot more asset allocation opportunity than you've ever had with the thrift savings plan. However, if you're not comfortable managing your own investments, if the concept of analyzing and quantifying risk is something that you find intimidating, you don't want to take the time to learn how to do it. It may benefit you to take all or a portion of your TSP and let someone manage it for you professionally. It's, it's never a cut and dry, is it good to leave it, is it bad to take it out? Well, it depends. And I, I would say here at, at our firm, the majority of our federal clients do transfer all or a portion of their TSP to our management just for that extra set of eyes, for the comfort of having someone that they can sit down with regularly, review the investments, understand the markets, tie it all to your financial plan. The, the, the downside is you do pay for that. Right. So you have to determine, is the cost worth it for you? Okay, thank you very much. All right, have All right, a great Bill, weekend. Appreciate your call here today. Let's uh, talk to Wayne, who's also in Virginia. Wayne, what's your uh, question for Dina? Right. Wayne, are you with us? Is this a new Wayne, or is this the Wayne we talked to this a couple a, of minutes ago? Uh, this is a new Wayne, is it not? Or did we talk to you? All right, hang on just a second. Let's talk to Linda then in Georgia, and I'll talk to Wayne offline here. Go okay, ahead, Linda. Great. What's your question? Oh, hi, Dana. How are you? Hey, Linda. Uh, so my question is, um, I put all my money into the Roth TSP. So I withdrew like four thousand dollars, and then I got a I got a ten ninety nine or ten ninety eight or whatever the form is. And it is putting it all taxable. So I'm trying to understand why. They were, not, they were not able to tell me why. Hmm. Okay. So it could be, it could be an error. 
Okay, and it could be, are, are, were you on the FERS, the Federal Employee Retirement System, or were you civil service? Um, under the military. Okay, the okay. Military. So you okay. didn't get any sort of matching contribution for your TSP? I did. I did. They, they implemented that later. I did get some matching contribution, yes. On the tax form, was the entire amount of your withdrawal put, put in the taxable box? Yes. Hmm. Yes. Okay. I, it sounds like an error. So what in if I'm in your shoes, I'm going back and I'm pulling out my statements where I made the, the withdrawal. Okay. You can go on TSP.gov, log in, and pull down the statements where you actually took that money out. You're going to have to probably make the case with TSP and have them issue a corrected form 1099R. But if it is if if your entire thrift savings balance is Roth TSP, then yeah. there should be zero tax on the withdrawal. My only question was whether uh, I, I believe any matching contributions that you were entitled to went on the pre-tax side. They they could have given you the entire distribution from the matching contributions. So in that case, can I go back and make a statement of should I have had an option as to where the money would have came from? Normally, they will do a prorated distribution. So if you've got 80% of the money in Roth and 20% in pre-tax, you're going to have to pay tax on 20% of the withdrawal. It sounds like there may have been an error in the distribution. So unfortunately, you're going to have to backtrack all that. You're going to have to get your documentation, and you're going to have to make your case. So, so one more question. So if it's been five years, so got out in 2020, mm -hmm. um, since the last time I made a, 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 a deposit into the TSP. So does that play a role? Like it, it, because it has not been fully five years since all the entire uh, money that I put into it uh, and I'm withdrawing, could that have some effect? When did you start? doing Roth TSP what year 2015 so you you've met the five-year rule okay it is five years from the inception of the Roth okay, okay? not from last okay. contribution so it can't not be like last in first out or anything like that no ma'am okay okay thank Linda, you so much I Linda thank it. you for your service we appreciate that indeed all right thank you take thank care you. All right, thanks for listening. Uh, we're talking now to Jan from Alexandria. Jan, what's your question? Hi, good morning. I was a government employee under CSRS. I, <laughs> my husband was private industry and paid Social Security. Um, I was told that I would not be eligible for his Social Security. Uh, he made just a little less than I, and I would like to have it explained to me, please. Absolutely. That's a, that's a great question. As a civil service employee, you fall under what's called, sorry, civil service retiree, yes? Right. 
Right. You fall under what's called the windfall elimination provision. And even though your husband was not a federal civil service employee and, and qualified for Social Security, you did. And for you to get his Social Security benefit would be a big no-no under the windfall elimination provision. It's, it's considered double-dipping. Oh. Hmm. Now, I've, hmm. I've seen circumstances. Do, do you ha- yourself have any non-federal work history? Did you have enough quarters outside of the civil service no. system? No, not enough. I okay. should have gone back to work when I retired, definitely, but I did not. How I close are you? Under 40, under 40, so I'm not entitled at all to his Social Security under the, these circumstances. No, ma'am, you would not be. How close okay. are you to having 40 quarters of your own? Oh, I'm probably halfway through. Halfway. That, that, would, be, that would be a heavy lift in terms of, I, I mean, you would need another five years of work service. Sure. Sure. And as a retiree, well, who very, wants to do that? <laughs> that? I wasn't very smart about it. I retired 23 years ago and uh, did, didn't think about that. Thank you so much. I appreciate all the information. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Have a great weekend. Jan, have a good uh, weekend. You appreciate your call. 855-767-3123. Ron's on from Georgia. Ron's, what's your question here for Dina? Yes. Hi. Good morning. Hey, Ron. Um, my question is related to the conversion of a traditional IRA to uh, a Roth IRA in terms of, of timing. Uh, okay. I uh, started investing in a traditional R- IRA in my uh, late 20s, uh, and then uh, there was a, a period of time where I didn't uh, uh, contribute and started contributing to a Roth IRA. Uh, I'm 50 at this time, and I was wondering when would be a good time to, since I'm at the height of my uh, income earning potential, uh, when would be a good time to convert that big lump sum, which is a considerable amount, into a Roth IRA? Should I, should I wait? Should I do it now? Uh, would I realize the benefits if I, you know, uh, sort of converted it all and seeing that interest accrue in the Roth IRA, or should I wait uh, and uh, sort of incur less of a tax? Uh, sort of penalty, if you will, uh, sure. if I uh, uh, sort of convert when I fully retire. Uh, what, what would you What would you say about that? Well, and here's the neat thing: you don't have to convert every single dollar in one year. You can enact a series okay. of small conversions over time. And if if the traditional IRA money is currently invested. I would really look into doing some conversions now while the market is down. And let me explain that to you. If you've got a series of mutual funds or individual stocks or ETFs that that traditional IRA is invested in, think about this. You could take the pieces that have been beaten up the most in this market, convert those pieces. Don't sell them. Convert the actual securities Move those into Roth. You'll be able to convert more shares now while the market is struggling. Get those over into Roth. Let those grow and enact a series of those conversions even now while you're working and in your prime earning years. 
the the mm. the current tax code is set to sunset at the end of 2025 and if congress doesn't do anything the tax code's going to revert to the brackets that we had before this current tax law each bracket's going to go up so even though you're working right now you're in a lower tax bracket than you would have been under the old code i would start taking advantage of it now Look at your tax return when you get it done this year. Look at line 15, see what tax bracket you're in. That will give you a guide in terms of how much to convert this year. All right, Ron, listen, we're kind of running out of time here, but we sure appreciate your phone call here today, and you have a great weekend, okay? You too. Thank All right, so take much. care. Well, it's been great. Once again, Dina. Flew by. Good Flew to see by. you. Hey, listen, we got a couple of people on hold. Hang in there. We'll talk to you here sure. in just a minute. This has been the Larry Rosenthal Show with Dina today. We sure appreciate you being here. Have a great weekend. We'll talk to you again next time on the radio on another edition of the Larry Rosenthal Show. Hang on on YouTube. We're continuing. We'll be back in a minute. (coughs) 